All right, John chapter 12, verses 12 through 19 is our text for tonight. And the title of our message tonight is Christ, Our Incomparable King. Well, I don't know what comes to your mind when you think of important people or famous people. I've met some, especially during my travels, and I know you may have been exposed to some important people in your lifetime, whether in your work environment or maybe on, you know, obviously through social media or whatever. We all know of important, famous people. And when you think of famous people and important people, their manner of entrance into a room or a particular context is typically quite the spectacle, isn't it? Typically quite um, um, an attraction. Not only is the red carpet rolled out for important people, but they come usually looking the part, don't they? Maybe wearing um, particular fancy attire, maybe walking in with their posse of people or followers or whoever who are with them. Usually they walk around as if they know that they're important, right? They kind of know that they are, they are famous and that they're influential. And there's a certain a sense of pride there that almost, it's almost as if they know that they're all that in a bag of chips, right? Or at least they think that they are from their own perspective. And you know, it wasn't so different during the time of the Lord Jesus. It was a time where there were, there were kings, and there were rulers, and there were uh, governors, and there were religious people who wore elaborate fancy clothing, and they loved the respectful places, and they loved to walk around with their posse, so to speak, especially the religious leaders, so that people would look at them and respect them and honor them and all of that and give them accolades. And these people ruled with a rod of iron. That was very typical in Jesus' day. And yet, when our Lord Jesus Christ came into the scene, he taught a very different way, didn't he? And he lived quite differently. In fact, in Mark chapter 10 and verse 42, and the context there in Mark 10, 42 is that James and John, the sons of Zebedee, have asked Jesus specifically that they would have the places of honor in his future kingdom. And Jesus answers in Mark 10, 42, and he says to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. And then it says in Mark 10, 45, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That is really the theme verse of the Gospel of Mark, Mark 10 and verse 45. Quite a different path to greatness, isn't it, that Jesus articulates there. And nowhere did he show, outside of the cross, did he show how he, there was a different path to greatness than in the passage that we see tonight, the triumphal entry. It's here in our text that we see the, the arrival of Jesus the king to Jerusalem, of the ultimate hero, the ultimate king, he arrives to Jerusalem. Finally, as he begins his, his uh, he said he's resolutely uh, um, set for the cross, to die on the cross for sins. But it is not the type of arrival that you would expect here, as we're going to see. Now remember the context, okay? In John chapter 11, Jesus performed a powerful miracle by the raising of Lazarus from the dead. Not only did that miracle uh, shake the crowds, it shook the crowds who were present, but that miracle really expedited the plot to have Jesus killed by the religious leaders. And then this plot uh, then led Jesus and his disciples to have this temporary strategic retreat 
And the reason for that mini retreat was, was really twofold. One, it was to prep his disciples for his passion, but also to, to wait for God's perfect timing when Jesus would appear again. And what was that perfect timing? Well, it was the Passover, that time of celebration and commemoration of God's deliverance of the Israelites from, from the Exodus in, in, in Egypt or, or their slave enslavement in Egypt. And so in God's perfect timing, Jesus would now be the, the ultimate Passover lamb who definitively takes away the sin of the world. In fact, this is all that Jesus was moving toward. He was moving towards the cross. In fact, if you look at chapter 12 and verse 23, it says there, Jesus says, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Well, what hour is that? It's the hour of His suffering. It's the hour of His passion. It's the hour of His, of his death. When Jesus would die as the Passover lamb in God's perfect timing during Passover week. Now remember that it's now Sunday in our text. It's now Sunday. The day before on Saturday, Jesus was in the home of who? Simon the ex-leper, remember? This was Saturday and there was a special dinner there that Simon the ex-leper really threw for Jesus and Mary and Martha and Lazarus are there. We know that it was Saturday when this meal took place because chapter 12, verse 1 says that it was six days before the Passover. And then John 12, 12 says the next day, our text, the next day. So this would have now been Sunday. And it's on this Sunday, brothers, that this monumental event happens, that the Lord Jesus arrives to Jerusalem in what is known as the triumphal entry or Palm Sunday. How important is this event of the triumphal entry? All four Gospels contain this account, giving various facets and details of what takes place in and around this event. In fact, we're going to reference all four Gospels to one extent or another to sort of give a well-rounded picture of the event. But above all, what we want to see in this beautiful event is the majesty and the glory of our King yet again. Why? We want to see the glory and the majesty of Jesus so that we might appreciate Him, so that we might be driven all the more to worship Jesus for who he is. And so as we look at our king's arrival, I want you to write this down first and foremost. We should be driven first and foremost to praise Jesus sincerely. To praise Jesus sincerely in the light of who he is. We want to do the opposite here of what the masses do here, who begin to praise Jesus, but listen, they did it insincerely for they're only after what they can get from Jesus as we're going to see. They don't really praise him sincerely because they know who he is and they believe that he has come to die for their personal sins. Look at our text in verse 12. It says that the next day, again, this would make it Sunday, the next day the large crowd that had come to the feast, that is the feast of Passover, heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. Now realize this is a massive crowd who want to see Jesus. Normally you, you had somewhere between 100 to 120,000 people in Jerusalem proper who resided there. But the historian Josephus, who wrote during that time, says that during Passover, during this great time of the great feast, there were approximately 2 million plus people just in Jerusalem proper alone, let alone outside of the city. There were millions of people in and around Jerusalem and a little bit outside of Jerusalem as well. And so many of these people who are there, this mass crowd, know about Jesus' ministry. They're aware of what Jesus has done and what Jesus has taught. And there's even more hype on top of that because they've heard of Jesus and what he did in raising Lazarus from the dead. 
So there is a lot going on here. The stage is really set for maximum publicity here. You have massive crowds, millions of people, great hype, great energy and excitement, and it's God's perfect timing during Passover according to the predetermined plan of God. And now look at the actions of the multitudes here in verse 13. It says that the crowds took branches of palm trees and went out to meet Jesus. And so there are those who are following Jesus' market into the city. They're trailing behind him. And then there are those who, who, those who meet Jesus as he enters into the city. And as he enters in, they, they are cutting down branches from palm trees. And they begin to sort of lay them on the ground, forming some kind of a special walkway for Jesus. That was a, uh, a tribute or really an action ascribing honor and respect to somebody who is worthy of it. But we're going to see that it was very insincere. And so as he enters the city, they're doing this. Mark chapter 11, verse 8 Mark 11 is the parallel account of the triumphal entry. Mark 11, verse 8, and we're going to go there in a bit, by the way. It says that they spread their coats on the road. I mean, they give Jesus the, the royal red carpet treatment. They're attributing the honor to him befitting a human king. Not only did they honor Jesus with their actions, but also notice that they honor Jesus with their words in verse 13. It says that they were crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Those words right there are a reference to Psalm 118 and verse 26, which is a messianic psalm. And that particular psalm speaks of the, the ultimate salvation that God's Messiah King will bring to God's people. And that psalm, Psalm 118, is what is known as a Hallel psalm. The Hallel Psalms are Psalms 113 to 118, and those psalms of praise were sung every morning by visiting pilgrims during this great celebration as they head to the city, especially during Passover. And so these crowds are familiar with the words. They know exactly what those words mean. They are uttering the words of Psalm 118 and attributing those words to Jesus. Pretty amazing. But there's something even more significant about what they are singing, because that Hebrew word translated Hosanna in verse 13 is a word of, of celebration on the one hand, but on the other hand, listen, it's a plea for salvation. Hosanna, it's a plea for deliverance from their oppressors. Hosanna literally has the sense of, Lord, save us now. Lord, save us now. It's a plea for deliverance and salvation. In short, brothers, from their perspective, the long-awaited Messiah had arrived. In fact, Mark 11, verse 10, records them as, as crying out, Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And Matthew 21, and verse 11, another parallel account here, says that they were proclaiming Hosanna to the son of David. Now, you already know what that mention of David signifies, right? It calls to mind 2 Samuel chapter 7, amongst other passages, where God promises that there will be a forever king who will reign from the lineage of David, and his kingdom will have no end. So they are attributing to Jesus messiahship. They are attributing to Jesus kingship as the long-awaited one who would rule from the kingly line of David. Boy, this really ticks the religious leaders off, doesn't it? In Luke 19.39, it says that the, the Pharisees are outraged when they're hearing people sing these kinds of things. And they order Jesus to rebuke the multitudes. But do you remember what Jesus answered them? I tell you, if these people become silent, the stones will cry out. 
the stones will cry out. In other words, I'm not going to tell them to be quiet. They're doing exactly what they're supposed to do. He is the Messiah. He is the king from the lineage of David. In fact, if he wasn't the king Messiah, then both he and the people are blaspheming here by attributing to Jesus something that he is not. But the fact is, he is the king. Now, he wasn't the king that they expected, right? And you see, this was the the problem. The problem wasn't with Jesus or with even their their actions or words at face value. The problem was with, with these people's hearts. The problem was with their superficial praise. They really weren't sincerely praising Jesus because they understood him or the nature of his ministry and what he had come to do. To them, Jesus was simply a political figure. To them, he had simply arrived to do for them what they wanted Jesus to do. And so we see here the superficiality of the the people's praise that it's not sincere, really. As we said last week, many of these people will be people who will be days later yelling out, crucify him, crucify him, who here are praising him insincerely. Well, thankfully, by God's grace, we know better, don't we? We know better by the grace of God. We know that Jesus is king as his people and that he is savior and that we should praise him as such. And so I think this, the, the indirect implication for us brothers from this passage is this, you and I different than these multitudes should praise Jesus sincerely. And in fact, scripture commands us as God's people to praise Jesus sincerely. Go with me to Psalm 2, okay? Psalm 2. One of my favorite psalms in Scripture, Psalm 2. The reign of the Lord's anointed. I love this this psalm. And the psalmist begins here in Psalm 2 by really giving a summary of of the heart of the nations toward God. Psalm 2 verse 1. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. That is a summary of, of the, the resentment of the people of the world, especially their rulers against God's rule. They view God's rule as a burden. They view God's rule as enslaving. Well, what's God's response? Look at verse, verse 4. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, verse 6, I have set my king on Zion, my holy mountain. God is not stressed out, right? We often think that as God sees uh, people living in rebellion, even in America and all of that, that some kind of God is stressed out and he's sitting up there, maybe biting his fingernails, right? Figuratively speaking and saying, oh, I need, to, I need to go to plan B because this hasn't worked. Uh-uh. This is the attitude of God here towards rebellion. He has set forth his king. He's appointed his king. And then there's a conversation here in verse 7. I will tell of the decree. Yahweh said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Here's a conversation between the first person of the Trinity and the second person of the Trinity, the father and the son. The father saying, you are my son, verse 7. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Wow. God says, 
You, my son, in the end will rule over them. I'm going to give you everything to rule over. You will be the world's unrivaled king in the future. And in light of that, watch this in verse 10. What does God require of, of everyone then? In the light of the fact that the Father has set forth his king, Jesus, whom we know now to be Jesus, the eternal son of God, he says, verse 10, Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. And I love this in verse 6, Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. To kiss the son is this gesture of, of worship, of, of honor, of respect for the Messiah, for the king, God's king. In other words, worship him. Praise God's king or perish. And this praise is to be sincere in light of the fact that God has set forth his son as king. Look at Psalm 29, which agrees in God requiring the sincere praise from us. Psalm 29 and verse 1 says this, ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly kings, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength, ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name, worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. God is inherently glorious, no one adds or takes from him, he is glorious in and of himself, our praise doesn't make him any more glorious, he is inherently glorious. And in response to that, all creatures should ascribe glory to him. Affirm his glory and his majesty. Praise him and worship him sincerely in the light of who he is. Fast forward to 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 17. And Paul says to Timothy, in chapter 1 verse 17 of 1 Timothy, to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen, he says. Praise him for he is king. Praise him sincerely. Over and over again, brothers, the drumbeat of scripture is for sincere praise in the light of the worthiness of who God is. And these people here, the masses, are ascribing praise to Jesus, but they are doing it insincerely. They are doing it for political reasons. They are doing it because they are selfishly driven individuals. And by contrast, you and I as God's people should praise Jesus sincerely, for he is our Savior. He's died for our sins, hasn't he? He's risen from the dead on our behalf. He is our King who is returning to judge the living and the dead. We should give him sincere praise, the praise that he deserves and he's worthy of. Second here, write this down. We should proclaim Jesus accurately. Not only should we praise him sincerely, but we should praise Jesus accurately in verses 14 and 15. Jonathan Edwards, the great theologian, as he contemplated the majesty of Christ, once wrote this, listen, quote, In Christ, we witness a, a conjunction of infinite highness and low condescension, end quote. I love that. In Christ, we witness a conjunction of infinite highness and yet low condescension. So good. In other words, in the person of Jesus, you have the union of infinite justice on the one hand and yet infinite mercy on the other. You have infinite perfect righteousness and required righteousness united with infinite grace. You have infinite care 
and yet you have infinite holiness in one person. You have infinite majesty in the person of Jesus and at the same time stunning meekness in our Savior. In the person of Christ, you have the ultimate paradox. A paradox is a, is a set of character traits that don't seem compatible at face value, that don't seem like they belong together, that seem like a, like a contradiction, but they are not. And this, but this is precisely what makes Christ our matchless, incomparable King. And brothers, here in John's gospel, we see yet another great paradox. Because here at the triumphal entry, we see that in Christ, we have both unrivaled authority, as we're going to see in a minute, and at the same time, unparalleled humility. That's how glorious Jesus is. That's how unparalleled he is in majesty. Amen? He is both one who can be described as having unrivaled authority and unparalleled humility. See, oftentimes when students of God's word come to the triumphal entry, what is often emphasized, and rightly so, is the humility of Jesus shown at the triumphal entry. But what we often miss is also the unrivaled authority of Jesus that is also shown in this passage. Look at verse 14 of John 12. It says that Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it. Just as it is written. In other words, this was in fulfillment of, of Old Testament scripture, just as it is, it, it is written, highlighting not only the faithfulness of God in keeping his promises, but also his sovereign control and authority in bringing about this event just as it is written. Verse 14 goes on to say, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. That, by the way, is a reference to two Old Testament prophecies, Isaiah chapter 62, verse 11, and Zechariah chapter 9 and verse 9. And what this means is that five to six hundred years before our passage and Jesus' manner of entry, that manner of entry was prophesied by Isaiah and Zechariah in two separate prophecies. So here John is telling us that Jesus' entry into Jerusalem as he entered was in fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. And if they were paying attention, that shouldn't have shocked them, right? Now listen, John jumps ahead a bit here in John chapter 12 and verse 14 to what Jesus did in mounting this particular animal. But I want you to turn with me to Mark 11, okay? Go with me to Mark 11. And this is where Jesus' authority is really observed. Mark chapter 11. Parallel account here. Verse 1, now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany, Mark 11, verse 1, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, verse 2, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt there on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. Note with what authority Jesus speaks here. He orders his two disciples. He is absolutely in control throughout this whole event of this whole process, right? Now, side question. How did Jesus know that the colt would be there? How did he know? Yeah, answer, he is, he's God. He's omniscient, right? He knows everything. You say, but, but I thought that he was really human. Well, he was really human as well. Listen, in what is known as the, as the kenosis, the act of self-emptying of Jesus at his incarnation, the kenosis, when Jesus emptied himself upon his incarnation, Jesus never ceased to be God. 
He never ceased to be God. Instead, he, he added a human nature to his divine nature. He was at his incarnation and is two natures in one person. Fully God and fully human. And so we should never think of Jesus' humanity as a subtraction, but as an addition, an addition of a human nature. And so Jesus at any time could access his divine attributes. And in fact, he did at various times. Here he fully knows the cult will be there for his disciples to bring back to him. And he authoritatively orders them to do just that. But look further at the authority of Christ. Look at verse 3. If anyone says to you, Jesus says, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it and will send it back here immediately. Again, hardly the words of a, of a wimpy Jesus, right? Hardly the words of somebody who they're going to ignore. And by the way, that title, Lord, there in verse 3, on the one hand can refer to a human master in those days or is equivalent to, to saying, sir, as in a respectful manner. But here it's a title for one who is much more than that. Lord is a title for one who is God. It's a title for the sovereign one who has all authority and is in control of everything here. Look at verse 5. Some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus said or the senses there had, or Jesus said, or commanded. And how did Jesus command it? With authority. And they let them go, the text says. The Lord has spoken. You better obey. In fact, in Matthew's account, in Matthew 21 and verse 6, it says that the disciples went and did just as Jesus had directed or the senses had commanded them. And so my point, brothers, is that throughout the event of the triumphal entry, what is often missed is the sovereign authority of Jesus, that he is in control and that his instructions are to be obeyed, no questions asked. This is who he is. He's the sovereign Lord. And isn't this, after all, consistent with the picture that John has given us and the, John has given us and the picture that the Gospels give us, that Jesus has all authority and that he's sovereign Lord? He is the one who has unrivaled authority. He's the one that commands the wind and the sea to obey him, who walks on water, who feeds thousands of people at one time, who creates wine from water, the best kind of wine. He has unrivaled authority over demons, ordering them to be expulsed from somebody, and they obey him, these demons. He commanded people to be healed of their diseases and infirmities and, and sicknesses, and there is immediate and complete healing when Jesus heals somebody. There's no process. There's no therapy, right, for months and months. Jesus heals at, on, immediately in the moment, unless he has a specific design that, where he set out a process there. He has unrivaled authority. No one, no one can compare to the authority of Christ. And even here at the triumphal entry, he is in control of the whole process, ordering people to do just as he has said, according to the predetermined plan of God. But then, of course, we have also his, his humility on the other hand. Go back to John chapter 12. John 12 and verse 14. I want you to see this. Because obviously this is what is most obvious to us, especially here in the account of the triumphal entry from John's perspective. John chapter 12 and verse 14 says that Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it. Not what you would expect, right? From one who, who has such sovereign control and has such great authority. 
I think the ESV here gets the translation right, calling this animal a, a young donkey, right? And as soon as we read that, all kinds of images begin to pop up in our heads. But when you read young donkey or colt in some other translations, listen, don't think American donkey, okay? You tend to be a little bit bigger in our contexts. Don't think that. These first century donkeys were much smaller. Really, they were somewhat of the size of a small pony. That's really what they were. You know, when our kids were younger, we used to take them to Griffith Park in L.A. How many of you have been to Griffith Park? Yeah, a nice park, right? And there's a cool place there where you can take your kids, especially when they're younger, to ride ponies. And so for the most part, all of my kids when they were little were okay riding on their own. They were cool with that. You know, I didn't have to even be close to them. They were totally fine. But there was one kid who will remain unnamed, okay? Because <laughs> they listen to these sermons, right? That kid will remain unnamed, but one of my kids who was just not cool at all riding on their own on these ponies. So, much to the horror of those people who were watching, one time I ended up having to ride on one of these tiny ponies. Yeah, I know why you guys are laughing, right? Here I am, this large dad, right? Not in good shape. On top of this miniature tiny animal trailing along after my kid who is on another pony in front of me. Needless to say, I didn't look very manly on that pony, okay? Looked kind of silly and wimpy on that thing. Picture that. Picture that, and now imagine our Lord, the King of the universe, choosing, choosing to ride such an animal into Jerusalem. So unconventional, right? So unexpected. So anticlimactic, brothers which you wouldn't expect from somebody with such authority and glory. And yes, keep in mind who we're talking about here. This is Jesus Christ, our Lord, our Master. This is the eternal Son of God, the second member of the Trinity, who has existed forever and ever and ever. The one who Colossians 1 says is the image of the invisible God, the preeminent one over all creation, condescending to this extent right here. Let it humble us. Here's the one through whom the universe was created and for whom the universe was made, Colossians 1.16. Here is the one who is before all things and in whom all things hold together, the self-sufficient one, the self-sustaining one. I mean, given the greatness and the glory and the majesty of Jesus, you would expect an arrival quite different than this, Right? quite different. You would expect him to arrive in full splendor and in full luxury with a posse of people, endless followers and all of that, who were sincere praisers and worshipers of the king. That's what you would expect, but this is not how he enters. And this was a far cry, this entrance from the predominant Jewish expectation of the day, which was that the Messiah would be a political deliverer. One who would rescue Israel from their physical oppressors and return them once again to position and prominence and power and all of that that the nation once had. That's what the typical Jewish expectation was. But what do they get instead? They get a king who arrives not on a mighty horse, but on a puny little donkey, a pony. A king who arrives not dressed in fine, luxurious, posh clothing or attire, 
but one who is dressed in humble clothing, right? Befitting a humble, lowly servant, brothers. A king who arrives not heralding himself, but who arrives as one meek and lowly and gentle of heart. In fact, Matthew, who really emphasizes the kingship of, of Christ, quotes more from these two texts. In Matthew 21, verse 5, it reads this. Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you. And what kind of king is he? Gentle. And mounted on a donkey. Even on a colt, the text says, the foal of a beast of burden. It says, even on a colt, he underscores the extent of Jesus' condescension. Even on a colt, not even a full-sized animal or horse, but upon a tiny pony. That's how far he condescended. That really captures the humility of Christ, doesn't it? Not what you would expect for a king. How countercultural. How anticlimactic. But listen to me. What an example to us, right? What an example and a pattern for us. I mean, as I was thinking about this particular passage and meditating, I kept thinking, you know, if Jesus would have arrived in accordance with his majesty, with royal attire and great pomp, it would have been fitting for him to arrive that way, for he is inherently glorious, right? And none of us could object to that, and none of us could fault him for that. If he would have chosen to do that. But listen, if he would have done that, how devastating for us. Because in our sinful, fallen state, we already crave self-glory, and we already crave self-worship. That is what we run toward, even in our weak moments as believers. What does our Lord do instead? He shows a different way. He shows that the way of the kingdom is the way of the cross. That the way to exaltation, brothers, is, is first and foremost condescension. That the way up is the way down, right? To be humble and think rightly about ourselves in the light of the glory of Christ. Remember his disciples? Constantly as he was ministering, debating who is the greatest. And do you remember what Jesus said on one occasion to them? Hey guys, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great men exercise authority over them, but you are not to be that way. You want to be great? Be servant of all and be last of all. That right there is true greatness according to the kingdom. And then what did he do? He lived that. He preached it and he lived it, right? Our precious Savior never commanded something that he didn't model first and foremost by his own life. All the way to the cross, he served us all. And so listen, here at the triumphal entry, we see both Jesus' unparalleled humility and his unrivaled authority in the tone of Jesus who is to be obeyed without questions asked as he orders his disciples, as he gives instructions. So you see why Jonathan Edwards referred to Christ's character as a, as a conjunction of, of infinite highness and low condescension. This is what makes him glorious. This is what makes him the, the incomparable Christ, the matchless Jesus. And brothers, how important that we see both of these. And how important that we worship and proclaim a, a whole Christ. W-H-O-L-E. A whole Christ. A complete Christ. An accurate Christ. You see, some people rightly emphasize Jesus' deity. That he's God. 
The only problem is that they do so at the expense, even imperceptibly, of not remembering that Jesus is also human. That he is human. So he understands what you go through as a man of God. Fighting daily in the struggle against sin. Fighting to rejoice in the midst of your trials. Fighting against that, that, that prevailing sin. Jesus understands, though sinless, he experienced in his, human, in his humanity our humanness, our weaknesses, our struggles, our trials, our sufferings, and yet he was sinless in the midst of it all. Amen? He's a victorious high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses. That's why he can be there for us. And that's why the end of Hebrews 4 says that. But this is why we can draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. For we have a high priest, Jesus Christ, who can sympathize with our weaknesses. For he was tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. The humanity of Christ is important. Never forget Jesus' humanity. So that you and I may boldly seek him in prayer and draw near to him in times when we are weak. Brother, he understands what you're going through. Your high priest. He can sympathize with your weaknesses. Come to him. Go to him. There's mercy at the throne of grace if you come with a repentant heart to your high priest. Now, on the other hand, some people so emphasize Jesus' humanity at the expense, even imperceptibly, of, of, of forgetting about his deity, that he is God. And they forget that as God, Jesus is to be worshipped and loved and served and obeyed. That Jesus is to be reverenced. That we are to be in awe of Jesus precisely because of the fact that he is God. You forget that the wimpy figure that people refer to as Jesus in our popular, popular culture is not the Jesus of the Bible. We hear it every day, don't we? Jesus is not to be trifled with. People forget that, even believers. He's not only Savior, but He's also Lord and Judge. Listen, the same Jesus who tells sinners to come because He's gentle and humble of heart is the same Jesus who will one day return to shed the blood of His enemies, the blood of those who have rejected His free offer of eternal life. And so you see why this complete a biblical view of Jesus is a far cry from the so-called Jesus of our popular culture. A Jesus with no backbone. A Jesus with no moral standards. A Jesus who is lovey-dovey and whose so-called love is detached from truth and a desire for your holiness. That you would become like Christ. That he has saved you, not only to deliver you and rescue you from hell and condemnation, but he has saved you so that you would be holy and set apart from sin unto himself. That is sanctification. A so-called accepting Jesus who's perfectly okay with people's sin, perfectly okay with sweeping sin under the rug. He judges no one. He only loves everyone, right? You heard conceptions of Jesus like that? How many of you have? I have. I read an article today just like that. Communicating a Jesus who is just a, some punk, wimpy figure. And that's not who Jesus is. He has to be reverenced. He is God. That might be the Jesus of our popular culture, but it's not the Jesus of the Bible, brothers. And this wrong view of Christ really was the problem with the masses at his triumphal entry, wasn't it? 
They had an inaccurate view of Jesus. Their understanding of the Messiah King was that he was going to be a political conqueror who would give them the prestige and the prominence and the comforts that the nation once had. And when they found out clearly that that wasn't the Jesus they were, they were supposedly yelling out Hosanna to, they stopped following him, right? And instead they wanted him killed and murdered. We must learn from their mistakes. We must learn from their mistakes and make sure that we are not only beholding a whole Christ as he's revealed in his precious holy word, brothers, but also proclaiming an accurate view of the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you remember what Jesus said to the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4, verse 24? Jesus said to the Samaritan woman that those who worship God must worship him in what? In spirit and in truth. That is sincerely, genuinely, authentically in spirit and in truth, meaning in a manner consistent with who Jesus is accurately as revealed in his word. And so we must do that. We must praise Jesus sincerely, proclaim Jesus accurately. Thirdly, thirdly, we must pursue Jesus faithfully. We must pursue Jesus faithfully. And once again, as has been the pattern, it seems like every passage, right, with John, there are various responses to Jesus's arrival recorded here. And in recording these, we are encouraged to to make sure that we are pursuing Jesus faithfully, that we've trusted in Christ, right, as our Savior, as our Redeemer, and that as followers of Jesus, we are pursuing him faithfully and walking in obedience and faith in him in an ongoing way in our Christian life. Now, I want to return to verse 16, okay? But I want you to notice the masses in verse 17, first and foremost, verses 17 and 18. There seem to be two different groups here in verses 17 and 18. One, in verse 17, the crowd that had been with him, it says in verse 17, that had been with him, notice, when he called Lazarus out of the womb and raised him from the dead, continued to bear witness. I told you before that I believe some of these are from the group uh, from John eleven forty five, who it says believed into Jesus, who believed in him when they witnessed the miracle. They were physically, visibly present right there when he did that. So there are some who got to see with their eyes what Jesus did and genuinely trusted in, in Jesus. But there seems to be a, a second group amongst the masses in verse 18. It says in verse 18 that the reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they, what? Heard he had done the sign. See that distinction? They heard. They weren't there having been eyewitnesses to the miracle. They heard. They weren't with him when he did the sign. They heard that he had raised Lazarus. And these are the folks who are enamored with Jesus. This is the crowd the segment of the crowd that are fickle and superficial, they just want to see the signs, but they don't believe in Christ. To them, this is all a spectacle, all an attraction, but their hearts really are not warmed by the reality of who Jesus is and that they could actually trust in him for the forgiveness of their sins. And then notice the response of the religious leaders in verse 19. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing? Look, the world has gone after him. As we've said again and again and again, right? Rather than checking the evidence and the facts, all they care about is power and loss of control and loss of influence and all of that. But go back with me to verse 16 and notice the response of the disciples who are genuine followers as we are, right? 
but far from a finished product, these disciples. Verse 16, his disciples, his followers, did not understand these things at first. Boy, we can identify with that, right? Oftentimes, brothers, we, we can't identify. I mean, we, cannot, we, we, we don't understand the things that God is revealing to us. It's an ongoing process for us. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, speaking of his rising from the dead and ascension to heaven, then they remembered that these things, what things? The prophecies referenced here about his kingship and his humble manner of entrance and, and the cry and the actions of the masses at his entrance. Those things. Then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. Listen, the disciples minus Judas Iscariot were followers of Christ as we are, but they're still learning. They're still growing in understanding. They're still being strengthened in their faith. And what John is telling us here is that the fuzzy in the present, one day future, these disciples would understand and rejoice in the fulfillment of Old Testament scripture by the Lord Jesus, and they would be comforted by the great reality of the fact that God had fulfilled his promises and of God's faithfulness. They were a work in progress. And brothers, so are we, aren't we? So are we. So are we. You know, oftentimes we look at the disciples in these gospel accounts and we think, get frustrated or sort of joke about them and say, how did these losers not get it, right? How is it that they were so hard-headed? How is it that they, that they just didn't understand? How could they possibly ask that dumb question? Brothers, if there were to be a gospel account where you and I were following Jesus, we would be right there, Right? We would be right there in our own experience, figuring things out, simple faith in Christ, but learning and growing in our understanding, oftentimes missing the, the faithfulness of God in the fulfillment of his promises as these disciples are missing it here, but in the future, they're going to understand. And as I've said, so often we rejoice in God's faithfulness in, in retrospect, right? As we look back, then we're thankful for the things that God has allowed. Then we say, oh, how faithful God is. But the battle is, like the disciples, to see things and the fulfillment of those precious promises in the moment, on a daily basis, being reminded that we can trust God because he's, he's faithful, that he's fulfilling his, his word. So these disciples really become a picture of us, don't they? Of our ongoing, that ongoing process of sanctification in our lives as followers of Christ. Not always understanding things in the moment, but growing in understanding Jesus and what he came to do and how we might grow in confidence in our great heavenly father and trust him. May he give us the grace to see just how faithful he is in his promises to us. And may Jesus, as he reveals himself to us daily brothers, allow us to pursue him all the more faithfully. Amen. Let me pray for us. Father God, Lord, your word is so precious to us. We thank you for the triumphal entry of our Lord Jesus. And Lord, how amazing it is to remember that one day Jesus will come in very different. He will come in in great majesty and glory in a different kind of way. But in this passage, we also see his majesty. Not in an, in an expected manner. We see his majesty and his humility and his utter condescension. And as Philippians 2 says... For this reason, you highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow 
of those in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will one day confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Thank you for that great reality. We await for that. We long for the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. Father, help us in the midst of our waiting to be men who are walking in holiness and in Christ-likeness, who are walking in humility from the heart, men who truly praise Jesus sincerely, men who truly pursue Jesus faithfully, and men who both behold and proclaim Jesus accurately. Help us to be those kinds of men by your grace and in the power of your spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.